the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Today, looking forward to a conversation with Dr. Donald Sweeting. He is the chancellor at Colorado Christian University. We'll talk about the crisis in higher education in America. And we'll also hear from Daniel Darling. He's the author of The Characters of Christmas, The Unlikely People Caught Up in the Story of Jesus. The book is published by Moody. That and uh, much more in today's program. Well, the House voted to formalize its impeachment inquiry into President Biden today, or actually yesterday, taking a critical step that GOP leaders have argued is necessary to force the White House into complying with their investigation. Now, this is a an official impeachment inquiry and not an impeachment itself. Well, the measure passed 221 to 212 with every Republican voting in favor of it and all present Democrats voting against. Light cheering could be heard on the GOP side of the chamber after the measure passed with pin drop silence on the Democratic side. We are now at a pivotal moment in our investigation. We will soon depose and interview several members of the Biden family and their associates about these influence peddling schemes. But we are facing obstruction from the White House. Oversight Committee Chairman James Comer said on the House floor ahead of that vote, the White House is seeking to block key testimony from current and former White House staff. It is also withholding thousands of records from Joe Biden's time as vice president. President Biden must be held accountable for his lies, corruption and obstruction. We have a duty to provide the accountability and transparency that Americans demand and deserve. Well, the Democrats on the other side, of course, do not hold the same view But the official impeachment inquiry has been sanctioned. Well, the assistant attorney, uh, U.S. attorney, who is accused of limiting questions related to President Biden during the federal investigation into Hunter Biden, sat for a transcribed interview at the House Judiciary Committee this morning. Assistant U.S. Attorney Leslie Wolf was subpoenaed last month to appear before the panel. She sat behind closed doors at the House Judiciary Committee. It was reported before her testimony began that she is no longer employed by the Justice Department, according to uh, sources. The source said Wolf had long-standing plans to leave the Department of Justice and did so weeks ago. Well, whistleblowers Gary Shapley, who led the IRS portion of the Hunter Biden probe, and Joseph Ziegler, a 13-year special agent within the IRS Criminal Investigation Division, alleged political influence surrounding prosecutorial decisions throughout the Hunter Biden investigation, which began way back in 2018. Well, with less than a year to go before Election Day, former President Donald Trump is leading President Joe Biden in a head-to-head matchup in all seven major swing states. A newly released morning consult poll shows Trump maintaining a strong lead over Biden in Arizona, Michigan, Nevada, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Georgia, and North Carolina. Trump's lead over Biden in Georgia, six points, and North Carolina, nine points, is outside the margin of error, while his lead in the other five states is within the margin of error and ranges anywhere from two to four points. The former president bested Biden by five points in all swing states combined, well outside the margin of error. But of course, this is December 2023, And the election is November 2024. 
We don't even know if he'll be the nominee. And there's a lot that could happen between now and then in both camps, the Biden and the Trump camps. Though Biden retains a hold on Gen Z voters, 44 percent of whom would vote for Biden today compared to Trump's 38 percent. His overall support is faltering after nearly three years in the White House. Much of the discontent appears to stem from Biden's failure to live up to his promises on student loan forgiveness, with 43 percent of Gen Z voters saying he has not done enough to address student loans compared to just 27 percent of all respondents. And Biden is making no gains among groups. He's going to need to pull off a victory next year, Morning Consult's U.S. political analysts Eli Yokely said in the summary of the latest findings, part of his drop in support can be attributed to his handling of issues such as the economy, Israel and Hamas, the war, both areas in which Trump is dominating his opponent. Fifty one percent of respondents across all seven states trust Trump more to handle the economy, while 33 percent say the same for Biden. As of the conflict or as for the conflict in the Middle East, 44 percent trust Trump. More on the issue compared to Biden at 33 percent. But again, it's December 2023. Well, the Supreme Court on Wednesday took up a high stakes legal battle that could lead to a definitive decision on whether the drug most commonly used for medication abortions will continue to be easily available, including by mail. The court agreed to weigh appeals from the Biden administration and drug maker Danko defending several Food and Drug Administration decisions that made it easier to access and use Mifepristone pills. Danko makes the brand version of the pill, um, Mifeprex. Well, the judges will hear oral arguments early next year with a ruling due by the end of June. The Biden administration welcomed the court's intervention with White House Press Secretary Corrine Jean-Pierre saying in a statement that the lower court ruling under review threatens to undermine the FDA's scientific independent judgment and would reimpose outdated restrictions on access to safe and effective abortion medication, end quote. Well, Danko said in a statement that it remains confident in the safety and effectiveness of Mifeprex, which will stay available as normal under the current FDA rules while the Supreme Court rules on the case. Well, the legal challenge was brought by doctors and other medical professionals represented by the conservative Christian legal group Alliance Defending Freedom. Every court so far has agreed that the FDA actually unlawfully um, in unlawfully removing common sense safeguards for women and authorizing dangerous mail order abortions. Uh, Aaron Hawley, one of the group's lawyers, said we urge the Supreme Court to do the same. Well, the court, which has a 6-3 conservative majority, has previously shown hostility to uh, abortion, at least the constitutional right to abortion, overturning the landmark abortion decision, Roe versus Wade, last year. The Supreme Court may also be poised to poised rather to upend not only one trial of Donald Trump, but also the charges brought against more than 300 January 6th defendants. The case at hand is Fisher versus United States, which the justices agreed on Wednesday to hear. To sum it up, a small town Pennsylvania police officer named Joseph Fisher was part of the crowd that entered the Capitol on the the 6th of um, January 2021. According to Amy Howe of uh, SCOTUS blog, he was charged with, among other things, assaulting a police officer, disorderly conduct in the Capitol and obstruction of a congressional proceeding. He has pled not guilty to all charges, and he's even challenged the obstruction charge now all the way to the Supreme Court. Well, that charge stems from a provision in the Sarbanes-Oxley Act of 2002, 18 U.S. Code 1512, which states... 
Whoever corruptly otherwise obstructs, influences, or impedes any official proceeding or attempts to do so shall be fined under this title or imprisoned not more than 20 years or both. Well, Fisher argues the law criminalizes only destroying records or evidence tampering in order to obstruct or impede official proceedings. His presence in the Capitol doesn't qualify, he says, and the justices will now rule on it. More than 300 people, roughly a quarter of all the J6 defendants, have been charged under the same law, meaning the court's ruling could affect the 152 people already convicted and the others still awaiting trial. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll take a quick break and we'll be back to continue winding our way through some of the day's headlines. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. I'm Georgine Rice. Coming up later this hour, Donald Sweeting. Dr. Sweeting is the chancellor at Colorado Christian University. We'll talk about the crisis in higher education in America. And later in the five o'clock hour, the characters of Christmas, the unlikely people caught up in the story of Jesus. My guest will be Daniel Darling. But first, we'll continue to look at some of the headlines. Well, Israeli forces arrested dozens of Hamas terrorists. They say were sheltering inside a hospital in Gaza on Thursday. IDF spokesman Daniel Hagari, he shared photos and footage of the militants being paraded out of the Kamal Adwan hospital with their hands raised. Hagari said over 70 militants surrendered their weapons to Israeli forces and were transferred for field interrogation. Meanwhile, President Biden sent National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan to Israel on Thursday to meet with Israeli officials amid an apparent rift between the U.S. and Israel when it comes to the post-war governance of Gaza. Pressure is also building along Gaza's southern border with Egypt as refugees seek to cross over. Well, German police today arrested three suspected members of Hamas in Berlin, accused of preparing an attack against Jewish targets in Europe. The three men, along with another suspect arrested in the Netherlands, were said to have begun preparing a weapons cache in the German capital where arms would be kept in a state of readiness in view of a potential uh, terrorist attack against Jewish institutions in Europe. German federal prosecutors said in a statement, news of these arrests came just after Danish authorities said that two had been um, prevented uh, from carrying out a terror attack, arresting three more suspects. Danish police refused to comment on whether there were any links between the arrests reported in Denmark and Germany. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu said meanwhile in a statement that Danish security forces had thwarted an attack, the goal of which was to kill innocent civilians on European soil. The Hamas terrorist organization has been working relentlessly and exhaustively to expand its lethal operations to Europe and thereby constitute a threat to the the uh, domestic security of these nations, Netanyahu went on to say. Danish police didn't go into detail about the suspects or give any indication as to the possible target of the alleged plot. It was a group that was planning an act of terror. The head of the operations at the intelligence service said there were ramifications involving other countries and organized crime. He went on to add, well, they said that uh, uh, w- they would only say that other suspects currently abroad were also thought to be implicated in the plot. The several police districts made the arrest in Denmark in early morning raids in several parts of the Scandinavian country. The threat level against Denmark is judged to be elevated um, uh, and they're putting it uh, at four on their five point threat scale. Police stepped up their presence in Copenhagen, but said the capital remained safe. The Jewish community nonetheless canceled a public Hanukkah celebration planned for Thursday evening, Danish media reported. 
And the prime minister there said the operations show us the situation that Denmark is in. For several years, we have noted that there are people who live in Denmark and who have uh, who do not wish us well. We are against who are against democracy, our freedom and who are against Danish society. Over the summer, Denmark and neighboring Sweden became the target of anger in several Muslim communities after a slew of protests in Scandinavia involved burnings and desecrations of the Quran. Well, there's more to that story, but we'll continue to follow in the days ahead. Well, the filmmaker behind some of the most well-known faith-based hits has launched a new movie studio with that sort of audience in mind, led by Jesus Revolution director John Irwin and former YouTube and Netflix executive Kelly Merriman Hoogstratton. The Wonder Project will develop premium TV shows and movies that appeal to the massive but underserved faith and values audience. The studio says the project is being backed with more than $75 million in seed and uh, Series A funding from an investor or investors plural at Lionsgate, United Talent Agency and others. The two industry veterans shared their excitement for the project. They say will cater to an audience from the heartland that's been constantly overlooked and misunderstood by Hollywood. There's proof this audience is enormous. It's the largest affinity group in the world. I'm a part of it. Kelly is a part of it. And we want more. We need more. That's a quote from Irwin speaking to Fox News Digital. We want to pull the family back together again in an experience. And we want to flood the world with hope. We'll follow that uh, development over the months and years ahead. Harvard University's embattled President Claudine Gay attended a university menorah lighting ceremony on Wednesday as she continues to resist resounding calls to resign over campus anti-Semitism. The daily lighting ceremony, which was organized by the Harvard Chabad organization, had approximately 100 students come out for the commemoration. Gay was spotted lighting the first candle. Images from the uh, events show Gay smiling ear to ear as she greets some Jewish students at the menorah ceremony at the campus Harvard Park. In an Instagram post, the Harvard Shabbat announced Gay's presence at the lighting. The Ivy League president was blasted in the comment section with individuals calling her participation in the event performative and disgusting. What a joke, another wrote. Absolutely disgraceful. Resign, others commented. Her appearance came the day after Harvard University's highest governing body announced that they were standing alongside Gay and would not terminate her. Boston's Democratic mayor has come under fire after she sent out invitations for a holiday party intended only for minority city councilors. Michelle Wu, the city's first Asian-American mayor, recently had her um, aide, Denise Dos Santos, send out an email for the event. Honorable members, on behalf of Mayor Michelle Wu, I cordially invite you and a guest to the Electorates of Color holiday party, the email said, according to the Boston Herald. Well, the city leader quickly drew criticism after it became apparent the email was sent to all city councilors, seven of whom were White. Well, the invitation was meant only for the city's six councillors of color. Fifteen minutes after the email was sent out, Dos Santos apologized and clarified that the invitation was only meant for minority city councillors. However, she did not apologize for planning a party that excluded the white city leaders. I wanted to apologize for my previous email regarding a holiday party for tomorrow, Dos Santos wrote. I did send that to everyone by accident, and I apologize if my email may have offended or come across as um, so. Sorry for any confusion that may have uh, caused the revelation about the holiday party, quickly received response from Boston's city council, some believing this was the epitome of a racist act, others 
choosing not to be offended, but disappointed by the uh, decision. First Lady Jill Biden was blasted on Wednesday night after posting a video on X showing dancers tapping around the holiday decorated White uh, White House, whose theme this year is magic, wonder and joy. In a post on X, formerly known as Twitter, the First Lady shared the video from the official Flotus account, along with a caption, a bit of magic, wonder and joy brought to you by the talented tappers of Durant's Dance, performing their playful interpretation of the Nutcracker Suite. Now, I watched it. I listened. I had no idea it was the Nutcracker Suite, but I did find it a bit odd. Uh, Social media observers didn't seem to be enjoying the musical content. The United States of Bananas, one viewer posted. Imagine thinking this gives America the Christmas spirit, another wrote. You are so strange, bizarre, freaky, one said. One comment even shared former First Lady Melania Trump's video when Donald Trump was in office saying, It was tasteful and seasonal and appealed to everyone and was absolutely breathtaking and gorgeous, unlike Biden's, which they said was utterly tacky, tasteless and anti-Christmas. I do remember Melania Trump being accused of the same by those detractors who disliked her husband and his policies. Well, the video was uh, filled with smiling dancers in brightly colored costumes, prancing and tapping all over the White House. But many viewers described the video as nothing remotely close to a Christmas theme. It was sort of... um, 50s jazz music in the background. Well, U.S. energy experts heavily criticized the United Nations sweeping agreement on Wednesday to completely end fossil fuel reliance across the world. And Senator Rick Scott from Florida is demanding an immediate vote on a bill he's co-sponsoring that would rescind funding for colleges that do not condemn anti-Semitism on campus. Scott said that uh, in an interview that the uh, call for a vote on the bill drafted by Senator Tim Scott In October comes after Harvard refused to take action against University President Claudine Gay after her testimony before the House Education and Workforce Committee hearing this month. The bill known as the Stop Anti-Semitism on College Campuses Act would prohibit institutions of higher education that authorize anti-Semitic events on campus from participating in the student loan and grant programs, according to the bill's text. It was introduced in the upper chamber last month. Univision continues to justify airing a November interview with former President Donald Trump that sent liberals into a state of uh, disarray simply because America's largest Spanish language network offered him a platform. Univision has been in a self-inflicted state of disarray for a long time, and the fallout from the Trump interview has exposed that. George Manila, the former director of MRC Latino, who has uh, monitored Spanish language media for years, said... The saga began in November when Univision aired an interview journalist Enrique Acevedo uh, conducted with Trump from Mar-a-Lago. It was Trump's first time speaking on the network since he famously kicked Univision anchor George Ramos out of the 2015 campaign event. Uh, Monella or Bonella, rather, who hosts a daily talk show. On Audacity's Radio Libre 790 and is a news analyst at the Media Research Center, said Univision was largely uh, has largely um, been seen as anti-Trump liberal programming from 2015 when Trump sparred with Ramos through the duration of his presidency. But in 2021, when Mexican media company Televisa acquired control of Univision, new leadership attempted to straighten things out. But weeks after the Trump interview, Uh, Acevedo is uh, still attempting to quell his critics. Everyone from the ladies on ABC's The View to actor John Leguizamo uh, to the Congressional Hispanic Caucus have openly criticized the Spanish language network following the now famous sit down. So um, Acevedo wrote an opinion piece in The Washington Post headlined My Trump interview had a purpose. 
giving Latinos a chance to hear him. Well, the heat has not yet died down. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. Coming up in our next segment, a conversation with Dr. Donald Sweeting, Chancellor of Colorado Christian University, on the crisis in higher education in America today. He's written two editorials on the subject. Well, the co-founder and spokesman for the Satanic Temple told Fox News Digital that the group started the After School Satan Club as an alternative to other religious groups that were proselytizing children. We started the After School program in 2016, and since then we've had a number of them in operation in various places, some of them still in operation, some of them uh, not for whatever reason. Lucian Greaves told Fox News Digital on Wednesday, people don't understand a lot of the pro-social values we rally around. We want people to know we're active in the communities and we're doing productive things. Reeves' comments came after the Satanic Temple announced on Tuesday that it's launching its first ASSC in Tennessee in January of next year at Chimney Rock Elementary Library. The spokesperson, June Everett, told uh, Fox News Digital that the club was requested by the pa- by a parent at the school. A Facebook post for the, the launch described the Satanic Temple as a non-theistic religion recognized by the Internal Revenue Service as a church. Hmm. The church views uh, Satan as a literary figure who represents a metaphorical construct of rejecting tyranny and championing the human mind and spirit. Dressed as an angel of light. Well, the school district officials said they're committed to upholding the First Amendment for all nonprofit organizations seeking to use their facilities outside of school hours. ASSC added that the Satan Club, the Satan Club, will not attempt to convert students to any religious ideology. Instead, the Satanic Temple encourages children to think for themselves. Rather interesting. I'll editorialize on that another time. The House has voted to formalize its impeachment inquiry. I already mentioned that. The federal judge overseeing former President Trump's case involving the 2020 election has agreed to temporarily pause proceedings while the president, the former president, appeals a decision over whether he is entitled to broad immunity from the criminal prosecution. In a brief order Wednesday, U.S. District Judge Tanya Chutkin largely granted Trump's request to halt the proceedings while he pursues his appeal. Chutkin said Trump's appeal to the U.S. Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia Circuit means she must automatically stay further proceedings that would move the case toward trial. Chutkin wrote that Trump's move gives the higher court jurisdiction over the case. She noted that if the case is returned to her, she will uh, consider whether to retain or continue the dates of any still future deadlines and proceedings, including the trial schedule for March 4th. The case would return to her if Trump's immunity claim is ultimately rejected, allowing the prosecution to move forward. Trump is charged with conspiracy to defraud the United States, conspiracy to obstruct an official proceeding, obstruction of an attempt to obstruct an official proceeding and conspiracy against rights. The Supreme Court's next scheduled conference day for considering such matters is the 5th of January next year. The court's brief order did not signal what ultimately it would do. Iran's foreign minister threatened a large explosion in the Middle East if the war in Gaza continues. And in uh, in other news... Well, I should actually elaborate a bit more on that. Iran's foreign minister has warned that the war in Gaza could lead to a big explosion of conflicts there with Lebanon and Yemen already involved in more countries poised to join at least every week. 
Uh, We receive a message, he says, from the U.S. telling us that U.S. bases in Syria and Iraq are targeted by some groups. The Iranian foreign minister uh, told the Doha Forum on Monday, at any moment there is a possibility of a big explosion in the region, one not controllable by any party, he explained via a translator. Well, on this day in history, 1799, George Washington, the first president of the United States, dies at his Mount Vernon, Virginia home at age 67. In 1819, Alabama joins the Union as the 22nd state. 1911, Norwegian explorer Raoul Admundsen and his team become the first men to reach the South Pole, beating out a British expedition led by Robert F. Scott. 1916, uh, President Woodrow Wilson He vetoes an immigration measure aimed at preventing undesirables and anyone born in the Asiatic Bard Zone from entering the U.S. Congress would override Wilson's veto in February of 1917, the following year. 1962, the U.S. space probe Mariner 2 passes Venus at a distance of just over 21,000 miles, transmitting information abroad about the planet such as its hot surface temperature and predominantly carbon dioxide atmosphere. 1964, the U.S. Supreme Court in Heart of Atlanta Motel versus United States rules that Congress was within its authority to enforce the Civil Rights Act of 1964 against racial discrimination by private businesses. In this case, a motel that refused to cater to blacks. 1972, Apollo 17 astronauts Harrison Schmidt and Eugene Cernan they conclude their third and final moonwalk and blast off for their rendezvous with the command module. 1981, Israel annexes the Golan Heights, which it had seized from Syria in 1967. 1985, Wilma Mankiller becomes the first woman to lead a major American Indian tribe as she takes office as principal chief of the Cherokee Nation of Oklahoma. 1986, the experimental aircraft Voyager, piloted by Dick Rutan and Gina Yeager, they take off from Edwards Air Force Base in California on the first nonstop, non-refueled flight around the world. 1988, President Ronald Reagan authorizes the U.S. to enter into a substantive dialogue with the Palestinian Liberation Organization after Chairman Yasser Arafat said he was renouncing all forms of terrorism. It's rather interesting to see where we are today. Following that uh, declaration, 2005, President George W. Bush defends his decision to wage the Iraq war, even as he acknowledges that much of the intelligence turned out to be wrong. 2005, an Iraqi journalist hurls his shoe at President George W. Bush. This is apparently a major insult in the country. Um, But uh, Bush ducked the flying footwear as they whizzed past his head and landed against a wall behind him. 2012, a gunman with a semi-automatic rifle kills 20 first graders and six educators at Sandy Hook Elementary School in Newtown, Connecticut, then commits suicide as police arrive. Mm. 2013, China carries out the world's first soft landing of a space probe on the moon in nearly four decades as the unmanned Chang's three lander touched down on the lunar surface. 2017, the Federal Communications Commission voted to repeal the Obama-era net neutrality rules, a move that gives Internet service providers a free hand to slow or block specific websites and apps as they see fit or charge more for faster Internet. 
Well, coming up in the uh, next segment of today's program, we're going to hear from Dr. Donald Sweeting. He's a Ph.D. and the chancellor of Colorado Christian University. He has written about the crisis on, of, in higher education on U.S. campuses, uh, the crisis in America, and explains how we got to this pass, why we're surprised by it, and what, uh, if anything, can be done to reverse course. We'll talk with him about that. That's coming up in our next segment. And we'll also talk in the second hour of today's program with Daniel Darling. He's the author of The Characters of Christmas, The Unlikely People Caught Up in the Story of Jesus. There are some very unlikely uh, characters um, who make up that story, and it's rather uh, interesting to consider the role they play in, uh, in all of this. So we'll get into that in the second hour of today's program. Well, Hamas terrorist fighters will not be safe in the terror group's vast network of underground tunnels in the Gaza Strip, the Israeli Defense Force says. The IDF spokesperson Daniel uh, Hagari said that the terror group's uh, tunnels won't be able to shield its fighters as the fighting intensifies. There is concern about whether or not hostages are being held there. Certainly with this announcement, they're giving um, adequate warning to leave those uh, areas. They will be flooded. Well, earlier in the in the day, IDF troops killed several Hamas fighters in the tunnel, in one of them. In the Hamas tunnels, the troops planted explosives. We identified the terrorists with a camera and killed several terrorists in that incident, Hagari said at the press conference earlier today. He said senior Hamas officials choose to hide underground and use civilians as human shields. Hagari said that the IDF has new combat means to kill Hamas operatives in those tunnels. We will enter, plant explosives in locations we know terrorists frequent, and will uh, wait for the right moment to kill them underground, he said. The terrorists won't be safe underground. And we learned earlier as well that they are flooding with seawater, uh, those tunnels as, uh, as well. Also, Yemeni Houthi rebels claim a drone strike on a Danish container ship headed toward Israel. The Iran-backed Yemeni Armed Forces claimed Thursday that its Navy attacked a Danish container ship with a drone. In a statement, the Houthi said that uh, uh, the ship was uh, headed toward an, um, an Israeli entity when it was attacked and that the hit was direct. The shipping company said that the ship was targeted by a missile near the entrance of the Red Sea. Uh, it was heading from uh, Oman to uh, Saudi Arabia. No injuries were reported. U.S. defense officials said the drone did not hit the ship. Following the missile launch, the um, uh, ship was uh, hailed by the Houthis, who threatened further missile attacks. And, of course, there's some discussion about escalation uh, should um, shipments of humanitarian aid and other resources be forbidden to go into Gaza. Well, coming up, Donald Sweeting. Dr. Sweeting is chancellor of Colorado Christian University. We'll talk about the crisis in higher education in America. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You know, the war against Israel has provided a window into the ugly side of higher education. Show writes my next guest in a pair of uh, editorials on Fox Digital in which he asked the question, why do kids, why do children, young people, after going to American colleges, turn out to be so hostile toward Israel? I think it's a question many of us are now asking. The quiet part is now being said and shouted out loud. Well, joining us to talk about it is Dr. Donald Sweeting. He is the chancellor of Colorado Christian University on the crisis in higher education 
in America. Thank you so much for joining us. Glad to be with you today, Georgine. I think for many of us, it's been quite a dilemma, a surprise to see the response on college and university campuses across the country to the murder, yeah. the beheading, the burning, the raping, abduction of Israelis uh, and the, the support for Hamas. And many of us are asking, how did American university students get to the point where they're celebrating this kind of brutality by terrorists? That's right. Well, it's it's uh, it's been a, a revelation of really uh, the changes and the shifts that have taken place in higher education. And like you, uh, so many were were shocked to see the celebrations of of the barbarity mm-hmm. um, and and then to see the college presidents come out and and uh, defend it and not even speak against anti-Semitism. You make the point that something is deeply broken in our elite universities. This isn't just by accident. Students that didn't fall into this. But there is a a philosophical shift on college and university campuses that is producing young people that come to the kind of conclusion we've seen celebrated over the last few weeks. Right. Yeah. So this has been a long time in the making. Uh, I mean, universities long time ago shifted away from any outright theistic or even you know, we're going to teach morals and character. And and uh, in the, the generation that I was a part of in college, you know, I'd say a moral relativism reigned on campus. We're not going to teach morals at all. But there's been a shift. In the last um, 10 years, there's been a shift from sort of the secular moral relativism to an ideological, I think I call it a neo-Marxist uh, ideology that has gained foothold in the universities and it's expressed in a lot of different things in gender ideology and sexual ideology and racial ideology and post-colonial ideology. But it basically takes a Marxist framework and applies it to absolutely everything in which the, is, if you're from Israel, if you're Jewish, you're the bad guys. Uh, and so students are indoctrinated in this way. They, they're not getting education as much as indoctrination. Um, you make the the point in your uh, one of your columns that for decades now, this has been going on for decades, many of these schools have been advocating leftist theories, that neo-Marxism you just described, that divides the world into two categories, the oppressed and the oppressor. Putting resistance into practice, targeting and overthrowing the oppressor class is completely legitimate. Um, the, the BDS, the Boycott Divestment Sanctions Movement. Explain that to listeners who may not follow as closely what's happening in academia, but does explain to us how we got here. Well, the BDS movement was, you know, boycott anything from Israel, divest, uh, no investments in Israel, uh, go for sanctions. And, and universities have been calling, a lot of student groups and faculty groups have been calling for this, you know, all, for the last 10, 20 years. But uh, what we saw after October 7th was this, you know, show up in a very uh, explicit way where they're celebrating Hamas because Hamas are the liberators. They're liberating uh, the Palestinians from the oppression, the oppression of of, uh, Westerners and the Israelis are the Westerners and therefore the bad guys. Because if you're Western, if you're uh, Judeo-Christian, uh, uh, you, you're on the wrong side of, of history. Uh, it's all the oppressed groups that are, are you know, need to be liberated from everything uh, that has held them down. Uh, so, so this has been taught, oh my word, it, you know, in uh, introductory courses uh, to the university and philosophy, and it's just gained a foothold in the faculties. And that's why, you know, you can fire a president, but that's not going to solve the problem. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, there, there's got to be a much bigger dive into into uh, what's being taught. And it used to be, you know, you didn't 
it wasn't ideology that was driving the universities. You went to get an education. So there's been a, a massive shift. And a lot of people are losing confidence in higher education because of that. Yeah, absolutely. I think another thing that was surprising that these protests weren't just anti-Israel, they're anti-Jewish as well. It doesn't matter if you're an Israeli, if you're an American Jew, this Jew hatred, anti-Semitism that is more broadly applied, I think is also surprising. Yeah, that's right. And it was very disturbing to see this, you know, being chanted in cities around the world, let alone at university campuses. When you're shouting, you know, from the river to the sea, we want you you know, to be free. You're basically saying, wipe Israel off the map. And if you read the, the charter of Hamas, mm-hmm. it, it calls literally for the obliteration of Israel. And that's where most of the Jewish people are, are today. Uh, so that's basically a call to um, genocide, which is the, the question that was asked in the, in the congressional hearing, you know, can you speak out against this? And, and of course, the president's hesitated and they, they, they couldn't. Yeah, they declined to do what was so clear to every listener that had had common sense, uh, one would think. I was encouraged to be reminded that not all um, schools, educators, universities have followed this um, this path, uh, that that there are exceptions. Colorado Christian University is one of them. And so we need to be reminded this doesn't permeate all of higher education. It does remind us we need to be a bit more discerning about where we're sending sons and daughters to be educated, re-educated or indoctrinated, however you want to put it. Yeah. Um, what yeah, can not we... Just, Go ahead. Not, not, not just a bit more discerning, a lot more discerning. Yes. Uh, and, and we find that a lot of people are looking at these kids coming out of the schools and their shift in values. In fact, I have Jewish friends. Uh, not, they're not Christian and they're, they're, they're more progressive Jews. But they, they'll say, we don't understand why our children are turning against Israel and our heritage. And, and they're worried. And I meet a lot of parents who say, I'm not going to spend forty, fifty thousand dollars $50,000 if that's the end product. But like you say, Georgine, there are schools. We're not the only one uh, that uh, want to give a sane education rooted in, you know, the, the, the great books, the great the liberal arts uh, rooted in a Judeo-Christian worldview. And we're explicitly Christian rooted in Jesus Christ. Uh, and we think he and his light uh, just uh, radiates and provides a, a great framework for any kind of education. Oh, absolutely. In one of your editorials, you uh, address the question, how do we fix what's broken in higher education? There are a lot of answers to that question, but can you give us a couple of ideas that we might consider and hope to, to apply to what's broken? Well, the, the the big question is, can it be fixed? And there, mm. there are a lot of people who are pretty skeptical, and they're saying, no, it is so deeply ingrained. So they're saying, uh, invest in younger schools, newer schools that have different commitments. And I, I, I think there's a lot of truth to that. I, I do, you know, I'm grateful. I, one of my degrees was from a secular university, and I got a pretty good education before it was ruined by all this indoctrinating ideology. Um, and I think, you know, if they go back to the liberal arts, if they go back to teaching history, if they go back to teaching uh, values, let's say, of, of our founding generation, 1776, um, if they go back to the Judeo-Christian worldview, they can be reformed. But then you ask the question, is there the stomach to do that? Are they, are they able to do that? And that's where a lot of people you know, think, probably not. Yeah, I, I tend to be a bit skeptical. I'd like to be optimistic. Um, but I am, again, heartened to know there are exceptions to this rule where a young person can go and have a fine higher education and come out with their yeah. 
their morality and ethics intact, where they actually are learned, are taught to um, engage in critical thinking and not indoctrinated. Um, so I, I'm grateful for that. Uh, but I, I tend to share the, the notion that it's not likely unless there's significant pressure brought to bear. Right. Yeah. My father-in-law, he, he is a Greek immigrant from Greece, and he went to Harvard University and he was giving to Harvard University. And I would say, oh, dad, you know, you know, they have billions and billions of dollars in their endowment and they they are pushing everything you don't believe in. And people give by habit. And I'd say don't give to schools if they have turned their back on the very things that you believe in and the basics for a, a thriving society and civilization. Give to a place that will produce students who they don't hate their past and despise their present and despair of the future, but they have an appreciation for their past and and they're willing to rise to the occasion of the present and they have hope in their eyes about the future. Those are the kind of students we're putting out at CCU. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, Dr. Sweeting, thank you so much for the work that you're doing at Colorado Christian and for taking the time to talk with us today. I would highly recommend the two pieces I referenced. I'll put a link on our uh, website for people to read to help us better understand what's happening and what the future may look like. Thank you, Dr. Sweeting. Thank you, Georgine. Again, Dr. Donald Sweeting is the chancellor at Colorado Christian University on the crisis in higher education in America. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We've got news and traffic coming up next and a conversation with Daniel Darling, the characters of Christmas. Stay with us. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, it's that season again with the lights, the gifts, the heartwarming sentiments that make up Christmas. Well, is that all there is? Well, my next guest makes the point that it's easy to become caught up in the flurry of activity during this season, and it starts earlier and earlier, forgetting about who is at the center of it all. How do you recapture our love for the Christmas story, for Jesus himself, and better understand those who played a pivotal role in his birth? Well, Christmas is more than Hallmark movies and trips to Grandma's house, says my next guest, author of The Characters of Christmas. It's a celebration of the birth of the Son of God, the long-promised Messiah. It's important for us not to not get caught up simply in the sentimentality of Christmas without realizing what we're really celebrating. Well, the book, The Characters of Christmas... In it, he takes readers back in time to Christ's birth, and he looks at the unusual group of misfits and societal outcasts and those who are often overlooked in the Christmas story. He brings each one of them to life. He explores their role in the Christmas story and digs deep to reveal truths from their lives that impact believers today. Well, Daniel Darling is a prolific author, a speaker who believes Christmas music should be sung all year round. He currently serves as the vice president for communications for the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission. He is the author of several books. He's also a columnist for Home Life and a regular contributor to In Touch Magazine, Christianity Today, a Gospel Coalition. His op-eds have appeared in places you probably frequent, USA Today, CNN, Washington Times, Time Magazine, Huffington Post, and many, many others. He joins us today to talk about his fascinating book that encourages us to look at the characters of Christmas, the unlikely people caught up in the story of Jesus. Thank you so much for joining us. I am so glad to be on here on the radio with you in Portland. Uh, Great to be with you. Well, thank you and Merry Christmas. (laughs) Merry Christmas to you as well. Well, it is easy in our culture, especially, to reduce Christmas to a set of 
um, sentimentalities and experiences that oftentimes fall short of what we're encouraged to believe Christmas is all about. Um, what what drove you to encourage us to think about and to consider the people surrounding the story of Christmas that might hearken us back to the true meaning of the uh, the season? And it's it's great that we have these familiar rhythms and and the same songs and the same story over and over again because I think God uses that to shape our hearts uh, and draw us toward Himself. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, you know, every year we're we're wanting to uh, find new and fresh um, angles at looking at the Christmas story. And I think the Christmas story is like a multifaceted diamond, really, where there's so many there's so many things about the gospel, about the incarnation that that uh, can draw us in. And this year I wanted to see what would it look like if uh, we looked at these ordinary people whom we, we've kind of lionized at this point. We uh, They decorate our nativity scenes. Uh, we, our kids dress up like them in our Christmas pageants. But in the first century, at the first Christmas, they were just ordinary people who uh, were swept up in the story of God coming to earth in Jesus. It is so interesting, the cast of characters that God chooses to play a part in this most important story in human history. And as I mentioned, and you certainly emphasize in the book, these are not the cast of characters that Hollywood would necessarily have chosen. They would quickly have overlooked them in favor of uh, the, the rich and beautiful, if you will. And yet, God strategically places these ordinary people around these events, and there's something to be learned from each one of them. You're exactly right. If you and I were writing this story, we would not have chosen the characters that are here. Uh, you think of um, the, the one chosen to be the mother of Jesus, Mary. She's a, a poor peasant Jewish girl. Uh, you think of Joseph, who's just an ordinary carpenter. Um, you think of the shepherd to, to whom the announcement came, that they were, they were just lowly shepherds. Um, we would have had a press conference and a social media campaign and would have announced in, you know, in Rome or at least in Jerusalem where the religious elite were, not in Bethlehem. And we wouldn't have chosen people from the backwater town of Nazareth. And yet this is uh, whom uh, God chose. This tells us something about the kingdom of God that is made up mostly of ordinary people. Yeah, absolutely. Well, let's talk about some of those characters, beginning with the uh, the two that we are perhaps most familiar with. Uh, Joseph, who was chosen to um, to be the earthly father of the Son of God, um, he's he's hand chosen for a task that I think most of us would shrink back from. What do you think about um, Joseph being chosen for that task, and what do we know about Joseph? What can we learn from him? You know what we know about Joseph is that he always did the next right thing. Uh, the Bible calls him uh, righteous, and um, you know I wanted to focus on him in, in the first chapter because I think he's often forgotten in the story. Uh, there's maybe one or two songs written about Joseph. Um, but here we see Joseph right away, even when he finds out that Mary is pregnant, he does the right thing by wanting to put her away privately. This would be the, the, the uh, instead of the more public way, that to shame someone who is an unwed mother. And then when the angel comes to him, he obeys, and he gets up and he makes Mary his, you know, he, he's not afraid to make Mary his wife. Um, he takes the child to Egypt when the, when the angel visits him and uh, takes Jesus to Egypt and Mary and Jesus to Egypt to, to, uh, for their for their rescue from Herod, um, he was willing to father a child that was not his own. And and think about what he was signing up for. Um, you know, Mary got an angelic visit, Joseph got an angelic visit, but the rest of their family did. And for mm-hmm. all of their lives, there'd be a shame and a stigma attached to them. Uh, and they were willing to bear that shame. Joseph was willing to bear that shame 
for the one who would later bear his shame. Mm. Well, let's talk about Mary. First of all, she's not even a legal adult by our standards today. She is a peasant girl. She probably hasn't traveled much outside of the circles that made up her everyday life. And yet God singles her out. This obscure teenager, he singles her out from among all the women on the earth that could have been chosen, or at least from the nation of Israel, that might have been chosen for that role. What can we learn from Mary and why did uh, why did God choose her? You know, I think what we what we see in Mary is right from her response of, you know, first of all, why did, you know, essentially, why did you choose me? How can these things be? And that's the question we ask today. How can it be that uh, uh, Jesus could be both God and man? It's this wonderful and beautiful mystery. And yet she said yes. She said yes to God. And let's understand what she was saying yes to. Um, later, when she would bring Jesus to the temple for purification, Simeon uh, would prophesy over her and say that a sword will pierce your soul. In other words, Mary was signing up for, for a difficult lifetime of hardship, of shame. Uh, probably there was a stigma surrounding her her whole life. We even see later in the Gospels that many of Jesus' even own family and siblings didn't believe the Messiah uh, narrative. And yet she was willing to do this. Um, she would be, as a mother, she would see her son grow up. She would see him scorned. She would see him uh, reviled. She, he'd be an object of derision. Uh, he'd be unjustly tried. He'd be put on a cross. She's sitting there at the foot of the cross as he's dying and bleeding, and he's mocked as the soldiers take his body off the cross and bury him. And she did all this, and she's willing to obey God because she knew and she believed that this child uh, was the Son of God. And even though uh, she had endured hardship for for Jesus, Jesus would endure the ultimate hardship for her and paying uh, for her sins. Mm. Let's talk about uh, another two a set of characters that there aren't many Christmas carols about, if there are any at all. And that's Zachariah and Elizabeth. Mary chooses mm-hmm. to go visit her cousin uh, while she is bearing uh, Jesus. And that's such an interesting part of the story of uh, Jesus' incarnation. But talk a bit about Zachariah and Elizabeth and why that story is included in this uh, greatest of, of all stories. What's interesting about their story is, you know, uh, the first appearance of, of an angel comes to Zechariah in this Christmas story. So after 400 years of silence, of, of no prophets, no angels, um, uh, coming to a cynical people who had read the prophecies, but they're not really believing him because false messiahs had come. They're under the, the thumb of Roman rule. Here's Zechariah with a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to light, uh, to, to give the incense in the temple. And Gabriel appears to him and says, your prayers have been answered. Your prayers for a son, your prayers for the, for the, also for a Messiah. And what we can learn from Zechariah and Elizabeth, I think, is a couple of things. I think, number one, they were well past childbearing age, and yet uh, God birthed in them a son, John the Baptist, who'd be the final prophet, who would be a forerunner of Jesus. Um, God had to silence Zechariah because of his unbelief. And I think what we learned from them is sometimes God has to put us in a period of silence and waiting Mm. for us to see him work. But we also see this theme of rebirth and recreation that you see throughout the Bible. Abraham and Sarah could not have children. Hannah could not have children. Zechariah and Elizabeth. And yet God birthed something new out of what was dead. And this is something that God wants to do in each of us. He wants to birth uh, this new spiritual birth in each of us. 
We're talking with Daniel Darling. He's the author of The Characters of Christmas, The Unlikely People Caught Up in the Story of Jesus. And to consider each of them as we contemplate the incarnation of Christ, his birth, and uh, all of those events, the book is published by Moody. We'll continue our conversation in just a moment, but I do need to take a quick break. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're continuing a conversation with Daniel Darling. He is a prolific writer and speaker. His latest book, The Characters of Christmas, The Unlikely People Caught Up in the Story of Jesus, encouraging us to consider the lessons that can be learned from each of these characters that were selected carefully by God to help unfold this drama, the birth of the Savior, the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Now, we've mentioned in a couple of these stories the appearance of angels, and in the 21st First century, there are lots. Uh, there's lots of uh, speculation about who the angels are and and uh, what their role is. But here in Scripture, we see specifically angels that have been dispatched for a singular purpose, and that is to herald the coming of the Messiah. Talk a little bit about what we can learn from the angels in the Christmas story and how significant they are. Well, you really can't tell the Christmas story without the angels, can you? Because, no, you can't. Uh, you see. You see Gabriel there announcing to Zechariah about John the Baptist. You see uh, angels announcing to Mary that she's going to be pregnant with the, the Son of God. You see an angel come uh, multiple times to Joseph. Uh, you see an angel that go into the wise men to warn them. Um, and you just you see angels fill uh, the Bethlehem fields uh, announcing the birth of Jesus. And then all through the narrative of Jesus' life, when he's when he's uh, in the wilderness of temptation, they're nourishing him. When he is about to be crucified, Jesus has to restrain the angels from defending him. And then there's, uh, there's an angel sitting on the on the empty, uh, sitting by the empty tomb, announcing that he's risen again. And an angel there at his ascension, an angel helping to build the early church. And at the end of the age, we see angels in heaven worshiping Jesus as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So angels are not like humans. Uh, angels are not recipients of grace. Uh, angels, you know, God has humans as a special uh, creature who are made in his image. The gospel is for humans. It's between God and uh, really between God and his image bearers. But angels have a courtside seat to this entire plan of redemption. And I think what we need to do is to listen to the words of Charles Wesley when he says, Hark the herald angels sing. In other mm. words, listen to the message that the angels are saying step back and look at it from their perspective of God's marvelous plan from Genesis to Revelation, this wonderful plan, and it should cause us really to worship. Oh, absolutely. Such a beautiful picture when you consider the the appearances of angels in so many significant events. I appreciate your reminding us of that thread that runs throughout human history. Now, again, some of the more obscure characters that make up the uh, the cast of those who are witnesses to or participants in the events of Christmas. Uh, let's start with the uh, with the shepherds, the innkeeper. Uh, these are people we don't know their names. We don't know necessarily how many of them there were. Um, but these are, are not people who are named, but play a significant role in um, observing and responding to the events of Christmas. Well, what's wonderful and interesting about the shepherds, I think there's a few things. I think it's highly uh, symbolic that the announcement of the coming of the Son of God doesn't come in Rome, doesn't come in uh, in Jerusalem where the religious elite are. It comes in a shepherd field to lowly shepherds. Shepherds were not uh, considered uh, high-class society. They were they were had to kind of tend the sheep outside the city, 
but it tells us what kind of kingdom that God is establishing, a kingdom uh, of mostly ordinary people. He comes among the lowly. But I also think it's significant because shepherding is a theme of the type of leadership that God mm-hmm. provides throughout Scripture. God calls himself the shepherd of Israel. Uh, David says, the Lord is my shepherd. You know, Israel is rebuked for having leadership that is not that are not good shepherds. Jesus would later call himself the good shepherd. Um, it, it's saying this is the kind of king that Jesus is going to be. He's not going to be like Caesar. He's not going to be like Herod. He's going to be a shepherd king who's going to sit on the throne of Israel's original shepherd king. And lastly, I think there's symbol, uh, symbolism because uh, the announcement of the final sacrifice for sins comes to those who would tend sheep who would be used for temple sacrifice. Uh, the announcement of uh, the one whom John called the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world comes to those uh, who are tending the lambs. Uh, used uh, for the sacrifice. So I don't think it's um, accidental that God chooses shepherds to receive the first announcement of Christmas. Mm. Now let's talk about the innkeeper. The word is not used. We we assume some things about the individual or individuals who are responsible ultimately for housing the uh, the first the holy family. But what can we learn from, and what do we know about the innkeeper, if you will? Well, we don't know much, uh, and scholars debate in terms of what was what was it actually like uh, for Mary and Joseph. What you know, where, did they have to stay in a cave? Was it a more traditional inn like we see in the parable of the Good Samaritan? Uh, what did, did they have to stay with uh, family in their homes in their hometown of Bethlehem? We really don't know. But one thing we do know, Luke makes a point of saying that there was no room for him, and so um, the one for whom the one who created the world. Who, who fashioned humans in his image, uh, did not have any room in the world he created. The one uh, who, for whom there was no room, though, is making room for those who put their faith in him. But there had to be somebody to tell Joseph and Mary um, that there's no room. And you can imagine the scene here. This, if there's an innkeeper or proprietor, whoever it was, he's not humming to himself, oh, holy night. Uh, he's just thinking, this is too visitors come by that I don't have room. What am I going to do? Let me scramble to make room for him. Uh, Joseph is not exactly singing Silent Night when he's knocking on the door furiously trying to get a room. Uh, little did, did this, the person here who's an innkeeper or whoever was there that night understand that in this place on this night would be a special night, a holy night, a historic night. The people who, I just imagine the people who had to sleep maybe next to Mary and Joseph or uh, people who had just happened to use, choose this place to rest for the night were witnesses to the uh, historic, uh, e- eternal, life-changing evening when the Son of God was born there. Mm. You write about the wise men and the fact that we don't know that there were three, and most likely there were more of them. But I want to take a moment and focus on Herod. He's sort of the the bad guy in this story, and and rightly labeled so. But I don't think we think much about him in this story. Talk a bit about Herod and what we can learn from his role in the unfolding of this uh, this story. Well, what's interesting about the way we think about Christmas, um, I don't know if you've noticed, but all of our Christmas stories uh, have a, have a bad guy, right? Even you know, think of it's a wonderful life, which is one of my favorites. You have Mr. Potter. Uh, if you have um, you have the Grinch that stole Christmas. Uh, you have uh, in the Christmas Carol. You have Scrooge. Even in our Hallmark 
movies that my wife makes me watch. There's always a bad person who is trying to destroy Christmas. And I think that comes from our acknowledgement that we do know that there's a battle between good versus evil. And in the original Christmas, Herod is the bad, original bad guy. He's threatened by the presence of Jesus. So instead of acknowledging Jesus as king, he's threatened and he goes and commits violence against young baby boys. But what he doesn't also realize is that he is just in a long line of antichrists throughout the ages who raise up against God's plan. This was prophesied in Genesis when, when God said that the seed of the serpent would nip at the heels of the seed of the woman, but the seed of that woman would one day crush the serpent. And so Herod thought he had power. Everyone in Israel thought Herod had power. Everyone was afraid of him. But the real power was that infant baby that fled to Egypt as a refugee who would one day uh, crush the head of the serpent. Mm. Well, let's uh, let's talk about two others who are rarely mentioned when we're talking about um, the Christmas story, Simeon and Anna. It seems almost like a side story, and yet it's significant because they had a long view looking back and considering the promises that had been made. Well, Simeon and Anna kind of appear out of nowhere on the pages of this story. Uh, But what we know about Simeon is that he was someone who, unlike everyone else, it seems, in Israel, had read, really read and understood the prophecies and had really taken them literally when it said, unto us a child must be born. And then he's reading in Micah that this Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. And so he's waiting and he's waiting at the temple. People probably think he's crazy. There's that old guy over there. He really believes these prophecies. You know, very similar to today when people uh, say about Christians, oh, they think Jesus is going to come again. That's really great. I don't think it's going to happen. But here he is. He's believing those. And he's asking the Lord to show him which couple and which baby um, is the Messiah. And one day the Spirit whispers to him, this couple here, this baby. And so he goes and he blesses Mary and Joseph and he blesses Jesus. But then he says something interesting. He says, now I can die. In other words, once you've had an encounter with Jesus, you are at peace with your life and at peace with facing your own mortality, which I think is a lesson and a powerful truth for all of us. He could he could face death because Jesus himself, that baby, would face death on the cross and defeat it. Um, and then we have Anna, who uh, we know even less about, but we know she was a prophetess. We think she was a widow who, uh, in those days, there was no social safety net, so she probably uh, was very poor. She, too, was waiting in the temple and believing those prophecies. Probably they thought she was crazy. Here's this old woman over there. Uh, bless her heart. You know, she she thinks this is really going to happen, but she believed. And it, both of these, Anna and Simeon, show us that God comes to those who seek him. God comes to those who wait on him. And I think that's a lesson for us. Absolutely. Once again, the book is titled The Characters of Christmas, The Unlikely People Caught Up in the Story of Jesus. And there are 11 chapters. You could uh, study them for the 12 days of Christmas. The book is published by Moody and a great study as we anticipate celebrating the incarnation of Christ. Daniel Darling, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much. It's great to be here on the radio with you in Portland and hope you have a Merry Christmas. Thank you. You too. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. 
is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the Portland-only version of the Georgine Rice Show. Um, uh, my conversation with Dr. Donald Sweeting earlier in the program, it was in the first hour. If you didn't have an opportunity to hear it, let me encourage you to check that out on our podcast. But I wanted to follow up just a bit. Uh, we were talking about uh, the crisis in higher education in America, and he has published a couple of editorials at Fox Digital. I'm going to try to put a link on our website so that you can read those. They're very well uh, written, but then I also read something written by Laura Hollis on an- uh, atheism and anti-Semitism at America's universities, and this may, in fact, give us a bit more understanding as well. She points out that Ryan Burge is a data analyst who synthesizes information about religion and politics in the United States. He publishes his findings and observations regularly on Substack. Well, last week he wrote an uh, an article. This actually was, yeah, I guess it was last week. This is uh, dated. Uh, yesterday. Uh, last week, he wrote an article titled, How Weird is the Religious Composition of Harvard's Student Body? Well, in it, he examines the results of a poll that Harvard conducted of this year's freshman class. Well, according to that poll, nearly half, more than 46 percent of Harvard's freshman class identifies as atheist or agnostic. That's 46 percent, an even higher number. Uh, nearly 65 percent describe themselves as progressive or very progressive. Well, Burge explains how much of an outlier Harvard student student body is compared to the general U.S. population in which only 12 percent self-identify as either atheist or agnostic. But Burge also points out how different Harvard student body is from other college students. He references a survey of 55,000 college students at more than 250 universities conducted by the Foundation for Individual Rights and expression. And according to the FIRE survey, as it was called, only 21% of this year's freshmen consider themselves atheist or agnostic. Harvard's number is more than twice that. Even more striking to Burge was how few Harvard freshmen and are Protestant Christians. A 2022 Pew Research poll showed 43% of all Americans consider themselves Protestant. Forty three percent. The fire survey of college students show that fully three percent identify as Protestant at Harvard. Once perhaps the premier university founded by Protestants and whose first motto was for the glory of Christ. Only six percent of this year's freshmen describe themselves as Protestants. My guess is that number could go down. After that, four years. Well, in doing some of um, the research Laura Hollis has done, she came across the results of a 2015 Pew Religious Landscape Study on Atheism in America. Well, Pew's data offers some insight into the composition of Harvard's first-year students. Fully 40% of Americans uh, between the ages of 18 and 29 say they are atheists. Note that this Pew study didn't ask about agnostics. Well, the numbers dropped dramatically in older groups of Americans among 50 to 64 year olds. Only 14 percent are atheists and only 9 percent of 65 plus Americans are. Well, the Pew study provides plenty of food for thought with other data points. More than twice as many atheists are men, for example, and nearly 80 percent of all atheists are white. The numbers are quite low among minorities, as well as first and second generation immigrants. But what really struck uh, Laura Hollis in this review was a question Pew asked about belief in absolute standards of right and wrong. Those polled could choose from two options. The first was there are clear standards for what is right and wrong. The second was right or wrong depends on the situation. Fully 83 percent of American atheists chose the second option, which was right or wrong depends on the situation. 
She thought immediately of the testimony given by the president of the University of Pennsylvania, the Massachusetts Institute of Technology and Harvard, last week as a congressional hearing investigating anti-Semitism on American college campuses. When asked by Representative Elise Stefanek, the Republican out of New York, whether calling for the genocide of Jews was bullying or harassment under university policies, Penn's president, Elizabeth McGill, refused to answer affirmatively, calling it a context-dependent decision. Sally Kornbluth of MIT and Harvard President Claudine Gay were equally noncommittal, insisting that chanting for the deaths of Jews might or might not violate their school's code of conduct, depending upon the context. Now, if you replace Jews with African-Americans, you might get a different answer and a, a, a very pointed answer. But I go on. When confronted with what should have been the simplest of moral and ethical questions, whether calling for the genocide of an entire class of people was at the very least a violation of university policies against bullying and harassment, none of these academic leaders of esteemed institutions of higher education could bring themselves to give an unqualified yes. I have no idea what these women's religious beliefs are or are not. But their testimony is notable in light of the uh, the Harvard poll, the Pew data and the shocking behavior the country has observed on college campuses since October 7th, the slaughter of twelve hundred plus Israeli Jews by Hamas terrorists, the reluctance to admit to objective standards of right and wrong, even in the face of truly egregious behavior, smacks of arrogance and pride. That's been a. Malady for humankind for generations. In fact, every generation. It depends upon the context. Sounds like it's, uh, it isn't wrong unless we say it's wrong. Well, the Bible warns against this. In the Old Testament, the prophet Isaiah writes, Woe to them who are wise in their own eyes. Isaiah five twenty one. The book of Proverbs says, Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and shun evil. Proverbs 3, 7. And in the New Testament letter of the Apostle Paul to the Romans, he warns that when we exalt ourselves over the laws of God, we lapse into error. They glorified him not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image of corruptible man. Romans first chapter 18 to 23. The expression pride goeth before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall, also from the book of Proverbs, is a lesson here. The outrage after last week's congressional hearing has been so great that McGill resigned her position at the University of Pennsylvania. There are public calls for the resignation of Cornbluth and Gay as well. And although Harvard's governing board has issued a public statement unconditionally and unanimously supporting Gay, she's now under scrutiny for plagiarism in her academic research. Well, even if she and other individuals remain in their positions, the institutions themselves will suffer consequences. Many of their major donors are withdrawing their funding. Harvard and other institutions of higher education are, within legal limits, of course, free to foster the culture they want. But Americans have no obligation to support that culture at Harvard or elsewhere, either by financial donations, sending their children there or hiring their graduates. And already there has been some backlash. It is rather telling. Well, in other headlines, Rutgers University suspended a Students for Justice in Palestine group after multiple campus disruptions. 
The university suspended its uh, chapter of Students for Justice in Palestine earlier this week, joining a growing number of American universities that have restricted the pro-Palestinian anti-Israel group's operations as campus activism has spiked surrounding the Israeli-Hamas war. Now, the chapter has two business days to appeal uh, the um, interim suspension. The university didn't say how long the suspension would last if upheld. A dean's letter to the group stated that it had violated several university policies. Again, I'm heartened that they have university policies they're willing to stand behind, the, um, uh, including those forbidding disruptive or disorderly conduct. Failure to comply with university directives, improper behavior by campus guests, and inappropriate use of space. It referenced student complaints that members of SJP had disrupted classes, a program, meals, and student studying. Rutgers joins D.C.'s George Washington University, New York City's Columbia University, and Brandeis University in Massachusetts in taking disciplinary action against SJP while becoming the first public universities to do so. It is, sadly, a very short list. Well, after arriving on the Senate side of uh, Capitol Hill, Hunter Biden made a statement on the media and refused to go over to the House side for a deposition, blowing off a congressional subpoena issued by the House Oversight Committee. This was yesterday. The House Sergeant at Arms has no jurisdiction on the Senate side where Hunter made his statement. Well, after his remarks, he quickly got in a car that he arrived in and left. Well, previously, Biden's attorneys demanded their client testify only in a public hearing, despite closed-door depositions being a routine first step in investigations. He wants special treatment. Republicans agreed to a public hearing after the closed-door deposition. Under Biden today, defied lawful subpoena, and we will now initiate contempt of Congress proceedings, James Comer said. We will not provide special treatment because his last name is Biden. It was the very thing that Hunter Biden decried in his very brief comments on the Senate side of the Congress, suggesting that because of his name, he was being persecuted. But, of course, because of his name, this wasn't resolved years ago. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back to wrap things up. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the final segment of The Georgine Rice Show. Well, the Supreme Court said Wednesday it would decide a challenge to the federal regulations issued since 1916, I've gone back a little far, that relaxed restrictions on the abortion pill mifepristone, ensuring the court's power over reproductive rights will remain in the forefront during a presidential election year. A lower court invalidated those regulations issued by the Food and Drug Administration, but they've remained in force while the justices weighed whether to hear the Biden administration's appeal. In 2022, a divided court rescinded the constitutional rights to abortion if um, uh, it first had recognized in the 1973 case, Roe versus Wade. Well, since then, the battle over women's rights to end unwanted pregnancies largely has played out in the states. Well, Lila Rose points out that the Supreme Court has decided to hear a case that may take the abortion pill off the market. Mifepristone, the abortion pill, has one authorized use to kill human embryos. This lethal pill isn't health care. It's homicide. It was approved unlawfully and has killed millions of of children. We will continue to follow that story. 
Well, the U.N. Climate Change Summit vowed to triple the green energy infrastructure in seven years. For the first time in the nearly 30-year history of the United Nations Summit on Climate Change, all nations gathered unanimously, agreed to a resolution that called for transitioning away from fossil fuels and committed member states to tripling existing green energy infrastructure by 2030. The nearly 200 member countries gathered at the COP28 Climate Summit in Dubai agreed to transition away from fossil fuels in a just, orderly and equitable manner before entirely eliminating carbon emissions by 2050. While previous U.N. climate agreements committed member states to work toward slowing global warming, the deal announced on Wednesday was the first to include an explicit commitment to do away with fossil fuels altogether. As part of an effort to stop global temperatures from rising another 1.5 degrees Celsius in the next decade, member states agreed to triple their existing green energy infrastructure, including solar panels and wind turbines, by 2030. The sad part is replacing fossil fuels. They don't have the technology or the means to do that. Well, Senate Democrats have found yet another reason to go after justice Clarence Thomas, this time by bringing up recusal when it comes to deciding whether former and potentially future President Donald Trump has immunity in cases to do with his handling of classified documents and his actions on and leading up to the January 6, 2021 events. Special Counsel Jack Smith made such a request of the Supreme Court. The court has agreed to grant an expedited review of the cert petition. Chief among those uh, Democrats is Senate Judiciary Committee Chairman Dick Dermott. Uh, there's been enough information raised by Mr. Thomas and his spouse that we he ought to think twice about recusal in this case, Durbin claimed. Another Democrat on the committee, Senator Richard Blumenthal, also chimed in, ready to say that Thomas should recuse himself. Now, they're referring to uh, his wife's activity. Senator Maisie Hirano, another member of the Judiciary Committee, a Democrat from Hawaii, said Justice Thomas has both a conflict of interest and an appearance of conflict of interest in any case about Trump's efforts to subvert the 2020 election. Hirano said recusal usually applies when there's an actual conflict and when there's an appearance of conflict. And they're alleging that one of the two at least exists. Well, on Wednesday, the Federal Reserve decided to maintain the 22-year high interest rate at the current 5.25% to 5.5% range for the third straight time, with increasing signs that the economy is cooling off. A majority of federal officials predicted that interest rates will likely be cut down next year to an estimated 4.6%. Also, no Fed official anticipates interest rate hikes next year. This sentiment was reiterated by Fed Chair Jerome Powell. We added the word any as an acknowledgement that we are likely at or near the peak rate for this cycle. But participants also didn't want to uh, take the possibility of further hikes off the table. In other words, uh, wait and see what the economy does. Will inflationary growth cool down enough? The Fed has repeatedly pointed at 2% inflation as its target. Inflation is currently at 3.1% over this time last year, considerably higher than the Fed's target. Well, the Senate approved the $886 billion National Defense Authorization Act by a vote of 87 to 13, with seven Democrats, including Bernie Sanders and six Republicans, voting against it. The bill authorizes a significant 5.2 percent pay increase to military personnel and provides billions for aircraft and ships. It also includes another $800 million in funding for Ukraine. Senate leader Chuck Schumer heralded the NDAA's passage by saying that it enables us to hold the line against Russia, stand firm against the Chinese Communist Party, and ensure that America's defenses remain state-of-the-art. Republican Senator Josh Hawley voted against 
the NDAA, criticizing it for failing to include continued compensation to victims of radiation exposure. When the government causes injury, he said, the government should make it right. It's wrong to let it expire. It is an injustice. It is a scar on the conscience of this body and on this nation. The legislation now heads to the House, where it faces criticism from some Republicans for failing to sufficiently remove woke policies from within the Pentagon. The House uh, condemned campus anti-Semitism, much of the uh, chagrin of much to the chagrin of Democrat squad members. The GOP House of Representatives passed a resolution yesterday condemning both anti-Semitism and the disastrous and morally bankrupt testimony last week of the University of Pennsylvania President Liz McGill, who rightly resigned under the pressure on Saturday, Harvard President Claudine Gay and Massachusetts Institute of Technology President Sally Kornbluth, both of whom somehow managed to hang on to their jobs. The world is watching, post-New York Republican Elise Stefanik, the hero of last week's evisceration of higher education hatred and elitism. Left media propaganda outfit Media Matters filed a lawsuit against Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton after he launched an investigation into the organization over potential fraudulent activity following its dubious claims that Elon Musk's X platform was running major corporate advertising alongside anti-Semitic and white supremacist content. We will continue to follow that developing story. Douglas Imhoff, Kamala Harris's husband, the vice president, on Monday posted a video on social media that featured them lighting a menorah and including his written a recounting of the story of Hanukkah. Imhoff, who is Jewish, wrote the story of Hanukkah and the story of the Jewish people has always been one of hope and resilience. In the Hanukkah story, the Jewish people were forced into hiding. No one thought that they would survive or that the few forced into the hi- few drops of oil rather uh, they had would last. But they survived and the oil kept burning during those eight days in hiding. They recited their prayers and continued their traditions. That's why Hanukkah means dedication. It was during those dark nights that the Maccabees dedicated themselves to maintaining hope and faith in the oil, each other, and their Judaism. Well, evidently, Imhoff wasn't paying very close attention when he was taught the history of Hanukkah, which didn't involve eight days of Jews hiding. Rather, Hanukkah celebrates the rededication of the Second Temple in Jerusalem after the Maccabees defeated their Greek-Syrian oppressors. The oil referred to was the sacred oil for use only in the temple, where only a day's supply was found for the rededication, but that oil supply miraculously lasted for eight days. Oops, guess he got it wrong. Well, out-of-state travel for abortion has doubled since 2020. A Seattle student failed a quiz for answering only women can get pregnant and other known facts. Oklahoma's governor joined Governor DeSantis in banning the use of funds for DEI at all state agencies and universities. And a Detroit man, 28, has been charged in the killing of the synagogue leader, Samantha Wohl. Only 10% of Palestinians believe Hamas committed atrocities during the invasion of Israel and divine justice. A Turkish lawmaker declared Israel cannot escape the wrath of God, then instantly collapsed from a heart attack. Hmm. Well, we are out of time. I do want to thank James Blind for producing, Dave King for engineering, and thank you for making The Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. 
Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.